This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you, as the parent, can follow their ride on a live tracking map. Yeah, when your teen requests a trip, they're matched with highly rated, experienced drivers and you receive real-time notifications. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today, they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. It makes them feel safe, and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. And today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much, as always, for tuning in. Shout out to our super producers, Casey Pegram, Max Williams, the one and only A. How, Andrew Howard. Before we get started today, Noel, we have this crazy announcement. This is massive, man. And I don't know about you, but I've had a really hard time not talking about it on air. Oh, right. Also, who am I? I'm Ben. Hey, Ben. Uh, it's me, Noel. I've had a hard time with it, too. It's like uh, having a secret. The secret secrets are no fun, though, Ben. Secret secrets hurt someone. And we don't want to hurt you, ridiculous historians, so it's time to let the, the badger out of the bag. Is it okay if I use a, a, a stuff they don't want you to know, coined and trademarked uh, catchphrase? Oh, of course, because this is a special occasion. People who know me on Twitter might have seen last week I did a, a vague post where it's like, oh, there's an announcement. No spoilers. We can't tell you just yet. Stay tuned. This is the moment you are staying tuned for. Folks, while Noel and I and our team have been faithfully recording new episodes of Ridiculous History, we have also been uh, working assiduously in the background on creating more shows in the Ridiculous Universe. And today, we are super proud to announce our first 
new ridiculous show is finally coming to the world. It's true, Ben. Uh, it's a, It really is kind of an MCU-type situation. There's going to be all kinds of Easter eggs and shared character experiences and chronology. Maybe not quite that extreme, but it's definitely going to be a lot of fun. And the first show in what we have dubbed the Ridiculous Universe is called Ridiculous Romance. Woo! Can we get... Uh, hey, uh, Max, can we get some, like, wild, raucous applause? Yeah, maybe hit him with an ooh-la-la. Ooh-la-la. I was yeah. thinking the same thing, or like a cat call. <laughs> Maybe not cat calls. We know the problematic <laughs> and troubled history of cat calls. But yeah, Ben, uh, a couple of pals that you introduced me to years ago, Eli and Diana, a lovely married couple who both come from improv background here in Atlanta, who you've done some work with, and we've both been pals with for a while now, are hosting this show. And uh, it is charming. It is lovely. Everything about it, I'm just absolutely over the moon about. Yes, yeah. And we are going to have Eli and Diana on a future episode of Ridiculous History to learn a little bit more about their story and the things they explore. You can hear the trailer now. You'll probably hear it on our show. We're just, we're over the moon about this one. We did have, transparency is important. As you said, secret secrets are no fun. Noel, you and I did have a little conversation after we had heard some of the first episodes where we thought, are they going to be funnier than us? Not that that's hard. <laughs> well, you know, we have our own specific trademarked and copyrighted brand of humor. Um, but but Eli and Diana bring their own uh, delightful warmth and humor to conversations about love triangles, weird falling outs among uh, royals, you know, uh, you know, all the things that can happen when the heart is involved, Ben. And it's kind of stuff we touch on here on Ridiculous History from time to time. And this show is specifically devoted to those types of stories. And um, Diana and Eli also do these wonderful little kind of flashback reenactment <laughs> right. situations. They've got songs. Gosh, when I'm saying it out loud, it really does sound like we have something to worry about, but <laughs> maybe not. Uh, it's uh, all in the family, right? But mm -hmm. when does the first episode drop? I think we've got a trailer coming up and then episode one the following week. Yeah, yeah. It may very well be out as you hear this episode today. So we do hope that you welcome them to the Ridiculous Universe. We can't wait to hear what you think about their explorations because they, again, as a married couple, can assure you the course of true love never did run smooth. Uh, so this, the, if you like Ridiculous History, you're going to love Ridiculous Romance. Uh, you might see Noel and I pop on there as well, but there is more on the way. Noel, that MCU comparison is so astute. I love it. We're assembling some ridiculous Avengers. And our own show continues. Today, we're diving into something that has, I think, well, I don't know about you, man, but stories about weird medical maladies throughout history always fascinated me. Because one of the things that we've done for fun, just like off air, just hanging out, is looking up these strange conditions of yesteryear. Like uh, one of my favorites is brain fever, just because of the name. Oh, totally. 
I'm also a huge fan of laundry lists of side effects and potential symptoms that go along with these, especially when they're super cartoonish and involve things like madness. You know, I always like make jokes. I think probably I'm not alone in this when you see big pharma advertisements on television where they are required by law to list potential side effects. Mm. And, you know, they just rattle off things that includes like, you know, bloody diarrhea and, uh, you know, what you always say like wall- walleye or whatever. <laughs> And, you know, and death. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this one that we're talking about today, the Devonshire Colic, absolutely has those laundry lists. Yeah, yeah. The Devonshire Colic was a mystery for quite a long time. It's a mystery that we're going to solve today. But when we look back at people of the past, we think of we think of certain afflictions or conditions as somewhat archaic, right? Like maybe brain fever was something people didn't quite understand. Consumption, which we now recognize to be tuberculosis, was also not super well understood for a long time. And when you think of the 18th and 19th century, you might think of things like gout, which is often portrayed as a condition that primarily only the well-to-do might contract. That's the stereotype. It is. And I think the reason for that is because some of it had to do with eating very rich processed foods. I can't not think of the episode of King of the Hill when Bobby becomes obsessed with this delicatessen and he constantly goes and he's eating like, I I think it's like, you know, liverwurst sandwiches or something like that. And he develops gout. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, and it is it is a sometimes associated. It is something that people can still get if they're eating foods that are really, really rich in certain things that can like build up in your system. And I'm sorry to be so vague about that. I'm obviously not a gout scientist. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it's safe to say there are very few gout enthusiasts in the world. Here's something that we notice. If you look back at history, the truth of the matter is before the age of modern medicine, people had tons of afflictions or conditions real or perceived that they couldn't quite concretely explain. And with the benefit of modern science in retrospect, we can say that in many cases, uh, folks were experiencing something that continues today that has dangerous side effects. It's mild lead poisoning. The most famous outbreak of this accidental lead poisoning was this thing called the Devon Colic. In this English county in the 1700s, this condition was affecting thousands of people. And here comes our laundry list. The victims, primarily dudes, and they were experiencing stuff like paralysis, madness, blindness, death. Uh, it it, It first got reported in 1703, and it just continued year over year to increase. And I think it was 1724 when there was a pretty big upsurge in the number of cases. And uh, this was also a year, here's where our mystery starts. This was also a year that was noted for a bumper apple crop. I love a good bumper apple crop, Ben. And it was the opinion of one John Huxham, who investigated this mysterious malady and published his findings in 1739, that one of the primary causes was cider, apple cider. And there's a great article on flandershealth.us that talks about the notion of taking the waters, which is something that I've never heard, but I think I'm going to start using that. Uh, You ever heard of a schwitz, Ben? Taking a schwitz? 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they talk about that on The Sopranos a lot. Have a schwitz. That means you go and sweat it out in a sauna. And that was exactly what they were talking about. In the town of Bath, England, in England's West Country, there were lots of these fashionable spas. This was basically considered a spa town. And it was suggested that folks who were afflicted with gout, rheumatics, uh, I don't know how to pronounce this, Ben, A-G-U-E-S, Agues? Augs? Augs? I don't don't know that one. Lethargies or apoplexies, forgetfulness, shakings, and weakness of any member. I imagine that member referring to, like, limbs? Yes. Yeah, you're you're correct. So they would go to places like Bath, England, and taking, and I agree, take the waters is an awesome phrase. We're officially bringing this one back. Here's what they would do. They would sit for up to three hours at a time, up to their necks in this warm water, and they would do this several times a week for as long as six months. And while they were doing this, they were also ingesting a lot of the local spring water. And the idea of curative or restorative springs is a very old one, and it's an idea that, you know, is with us to a degree in the modern day. The weird thing about this although it might sound like kind of a placebo, the bizarre thing that's somewhat mysterious here is that this treatment appeared to work in the majority of cases. In fact, a lot of people who experienced paralysis from severe or acute lead poisoning later found their condition mitigated by doing this process, by taking the waters in bath. Why? How? We'll, we'll tell you in a little bit, but before we do, let's take a closer look at lead. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber Teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features, 
features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. You know, no, I always remembered growing up, some of my relatives, my great, my great, great somethings, they were the kind of people who had the really fancy flatware and cups or glasses in one of those hutches. And, you know, you would only ever take it out for special mm-hmm. occasions. And, oh, uh, yeah. My mom's got one of those. Yeah, it's weird. It's like the, there's so many things your parents have that you are not allowed to touch, which is so strange. Like the decorative soaps, you can't use the fancy soap. That's for company. Fake fruit. Fake fruit. Specifically monogrammed towels, hand towels. You know, you're not supposed to actually dry your hands on these towels that are in the bathroom. There's a separate stack of towels that you're supposed to use to dry. I've never understood that. Uh, but it's, it, it's a, it was a different world. But you're right, Ben. Those decorative cabinets, where they're meant to be on display. Like, at the very best, I will try to serve guests with the non-chipped flatware. Well, yeah, well, yeah, here's the thing. I have a, I always wondered as a kid... You know, I'd see this, uh, the fancy flatware and glassware taken out, you know, on Thanksgiving or something like that when the whole family gets together. But there was one set of glasses that was never taken out, never really touched. Uh, I was forbidden from playing with them or drinking from them. And I always thought it was because my parents assumed I would break things, which I would. I was a, a klutz. I was a cartoonishly clumsy child. But later I learned that this glassware contained lead and Mm -hmm. my parents and uncles and aunts were aware of this. And so they didn't want to throw this stuff away, but they certainly didn't want their kids drinking lead because they come from the modern era and are very well aware of the problems that lead can pose, especially when children are exposed to it. Because since the times of ancient Rome, lead has made its way into alcohol specifically, it can happen a couple of ways. We know now it was either due to the makers of said booze, wine or whatever, using lead acetate to sweeten the, to sweeten the sauce or storing Ugh. stuff in containers that were glazed with lead. That's so weird. Yeah, I'm a big fan of books with very specific titles, uh, as I think you are, Mm -hmm. and also a fan of anonymously published books. It adds a certain mystique to it that I just can't get enough of. But there was one published in 1795 called Valuable Secrets Concerning the Arts and Trades. And in it, 
it contained a recipe for treating wine with lead. And the idea was that you would take wine vinegar and saturate it with lethargy. Which is funny because it's also that's one of the conditions that leads is it that, that comes from lead poisoning, lethargy, lethargy, which maybe that's the etymology there. Who knows? Uh, but lethargy is lead oxide, essentially. Uh, and then you would add about a half a liter of this concoction of, of wine vinegar and this uh, lead material to each hogshead of wine, a hogshead being a cask that would hold 50 imperial gallons in metric. That's about 225 liters. Mm -hmm. And then doing this would make sense to you at the time because you would know a lot about making and storing wine, but you wouldn't know much about the long-term effects of lead exposure. So it's a win-win from your uh, perspective as a winemaker. The wine is going to be protected against going bad and added bonus, it's going to taste ever so much sweeter, just a little bit sweeter. And here's what was happening. The lead oxide was reacting with any acetic acid in the vinegar to form a soluble lead acetate. And this concentration of lead in the wine may have, in many cases, exceeded 50 parts per million which just uh, the basic explanation for that is that it's very, it, it's bad. <laughs> so yes. it, it wouldn't, it would be enough for the metal to deactivate the enzymes of yeast that could threaten the alcoholic content of the wine, but the amount of lead acetate would still, there, there wouldn't be enough there to interfere with the actual taste other than that sweetness. And so what we're looking at is an adulteration of booze with lead, either deliberately or by accident, you know, depending, it might have just been in the containers glazed with lead. And this, this had effects on multiple populations across centuries, from Roman times to the Middle Ages. Sometimes the amount of lead would cause these community-wide outbreaks of severe lead poisoning and they all, and it seemed like uh, it seemed as though people just weren't making the connection for mm -hmm. a long time, and they thought there were these regionally specific. You know, we love the weird disease names, just regionally specific, strange names for things like the Picton colic. Right, that was one that was uh, regional to France in the 1600s. Isn't colic like that condition that babies have, where they cough a lot? Yeah, like co a they're colicky, colicky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, colic, the way we understand it today, is a severe pain in the abdomen caused by gas or obstruction in the intestines, and we all associate it with babies, I think. Man, that colic sure was a severe pain in my abdomen, man. Let me tell you what. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, they were saying uh, that they, they were describing this umbrella of conditions, this umbrella group of conditions as colic, because people were feeling generally unwell. My favorite name, though, Noel, probably for this is, uh, well, you know what it is. Oh, I know what it is. It's the dry gripes. The dry gripes. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was regional to Massachusetts uh, in the American colonies back in the early 1700s. And in the southwest of England, they referred to it as the Devon colic or the Devonshire colic. That was a little later, actually. Uh, but that one involved, that's the thing, Ben, these all kind of had slightly varying symptoms, it would seem. Like, I don't quite understand how they lumped them all together. But uh, this one involved stomach pains, constipation, and 
mental disturbances. Ooh, that last one's spooky. And I, I shouldn't laugh about the dry gripes because, you know, it affected real people. But I cannot wait to call out of work one day by saying, I'm sorry, I can't make this meeting. I've got the dry gripes and I need to take the waters. I am become weird. I have the dry gripes and I must take the waters post haste. We are making, we are slowly building the best get out of work letter ever. Uh, So you're right. They had uh, the, the variation in the symptoms most likely depended upon the amount of lead to which people were exposed. There was something else that was happening. There was a thing called painter's colic because there was a lot of lead in paint and this would cause chronic constipation. Uh, for painters and for people who manufactured paint, everybody was looking for a reason to explain this, but they were usually looking for a reason to explain the specific regional outbreak they were witnessing. That's where John Huxham comes in, 1724. He's an English doctor. He notices there, there's a ton of people coming to him saying they got the cold sweats. They've got stomach pain. Perhaps most distressingly, they're vomiting a lot of bile with blood in it, and then they're becoming paralyzed. So he says, this is an outbreak of Devonshire colic. And it's so weird because they knew that there was there seemed to be some sort of correlation, right, between the apple harvest, cider drinking, and the sickness. As far back as 1703, a doctor named William Musgrave said that the cause of Devonshire colic was roof and acid cider, drunk in too great quantities, T-O-O. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, drinking too much. But specifically the cider. And, you know, in Devon, even to this day, or Devonshire, is it, people call it Devon. They definitely still call it that. But I guess maybe the Shire is just sort of like means Devon town, you know, a Shire, right? Like in The Hobbit. But it is very much still prime cider country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and from what we understand, uh, the terms are often used interchangeably, Devon or Devonshire. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they understand that there's this correlation. Right. And the weird thing is, 1703, Musgrave is right. In a way, Devon cider is the source of this condition, but the cider itself, the roughness, the acidity, the amount consumed, didn't really have much to do with what was happening. Everything he described bright red urine, pale skin, frequent vomiting, uh, incredibly painful stomach aches. These are all textbook definitions of lead poisoning, especially at severe paralysis. Wait, when you say bright red urine, does that mean there's blood in the urine? Or is it just like, you know, sort of like when you're dehydrated, your urine becomes very orange? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. We know people are definitely vomiting up some blood. But as far as bright red urine, um, it may have just been discoloration. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise, they... He, probably would have noticed a blood content of some sort. That's true, because blood in the, I mean, not to be too gross, but like if you've ever, you know, had any kind of blood go into water, you know that it proliferates in the water much differently than urine. Like it has sort of a cloudy quality to it. That's, yeah, that's a good point. So later, there's a medical historian who comes along. His name is H.A. Waldron. And he noticed that the cider makers of Devon tended to process their apple harvest in these lead-lined pounding mechanisms and presses. This is coming from a great Atlas Obscura article, The History of Bath. 
And so there's another important piece here. The poor members of the community lived almost entirely off cider and apples and everything they're touching, all the cider they're touching has spent some time absorbing lead. Mm -hmm. And these doctors are in this race to figure out like, how do we treat this? How do we, we can't tell people not to eat. It's their main source of food. We need to know what's going on, or we need to at least sort of mitigate these symptoms. And so many members of the medical establishment of the day ended up sending their patients, like we said, to Bath. And uh, the town's name, like you said earlier, Noel, refers to those local springs. They've got a nice temperature, about 120 degrees Fahrenheit or so. And People loved hanging out in these, and there was a long-standing belief that the waters were curative or restorative due to their mineral content. The healing spring waters, right? Mm -hmm. um, there is a town, I want to say it's in North Carolina, hot, it's called, literally called Hot Springs. Mm -hmm. I believe it's North Carolina, but um, these natural hot springs that just come right out of the ground, and they build these kind of structures around them that you can, you know, have a nice uh, schwitz in. But as it turns out, while these uh, situations are indeed super relaxing and a nice way to unwind, Unless you put some kind of, you know, uh, like Epsom salts, say, for example, which can bring down swelling. That's a good way to treat gout even, I believe. Again, not medical advice, but I think I've read that. Um, it can reduce inflammation, for example. The waters themselves don't really do much other than, you know, mellow you out. Uh, and that was addressed in a 1990 edition of the Medical History Journal by Audrey Haywood, who discusses literally his medical history and kind of debunks certain myths of which there are many, as we know, practicing medicine oftentimes is just what it sounds like, especially historically. Um, and she has had this to say about the efficacy of hot springs. Quote, it is commonly assumed that spa therapy has only a placebo effect, that the pleasurable activity of immersion in warm mineral water has social and psychological effects, but no physiological value. Yeah, so this is why bath is extraordinary in this situation. As Haywood goes on to describe, there did seem to be measurable significant benefits for people, especially if they were suffering from paralysis. Uh, if they went into these curative waters, they would indeed find their conditions mitigated or cured. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Uber Teen. Introducing Uber Teen Accounts, an Uber account for your teen with trackable trips and highly rated drivers. This is important stuff. Your teen can feel a sense of independence and you can follow their entire ride on that live tracking map. And, you know, I've actually been using Uber Teen lately to help my teen uh, get to and from various events. The other week, I used it to get them and their friend uh, to and from a concert in Atlanta. And today they're actually going to use it to get home from a football game. I watch every step of the way uh, from the moment the car's called to when they get in and then I can track their progress to and from their destination. It makes them feel safe and it lets me know that they're safe. I absolutely love it. Mm -hmm. And here's how it works. When your team requests a trip, they are matched with highly rated experienced drivers and you receive those real-time notifications as well as enhanced safety features. That's right. Pin verification, in fact, to ensure that your team enters the right vehicle. Live trip tracking for parents. Plus, you, the parent, can contact the driver directly from the app. 
And don't delay. Today, you can get 40% off. That's up to $15 off three Uber teen rides. Valid for the first 30 days for new users in select markets. See app for details. Add your teen to your account today. Available in select locations. See app for details. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. So let's talk about how it actually works. The explanation is surprisingly simple. After you have consumed lead, if you're a human being, your body mistakes it for calcium and uses it to build bone. And over time, that poison that is accumulated in your system causes all these violent symptoms. And here's something that is a hazard for the astronauts in the audience. When you are weightless for a period of time, you increase calcium loss from your bones. So if you're floating in these springs for hours at a time, several days out of the week for up to six months, your body is gradually stripped of both calcium and lead from your skeleton, and then you are able to avoid it. You urinate it away. And we know that Research in the 1980s confirmed this. Audrey Hayward, the author you Noel just mentioned, they found that doing this regimen, even in the modern day, would increase your flow of urine and provably remove significant amounts of lead from your system. So in at least one case, you really could just take a bath to, to cure yourself of something. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like if, if it works one time for one set, then that can easily be a word of mouth or via doctors kind of like relying on a, a very small sample size, spread that as like the gospel for treating this condition overall, which isn't always going to pan out. In fact, you know, doesn't. Yeah. And this, the Bath General Hospital around the same time, they were conducting what they called the Trial of the Waters, which sounds like a fantasy novel. This is what Haywood considers one of the very first long-term medical therapy trials in history. And it's this same thing. The doctors were giving victims of paralysis what they considered healthy, fresh food, daily soaks in these waters. 
And they found that drinking this water actually had a medicinal effect as well. We said that bath spa water was pretty mineral rich. Uh, It was specifically rich in calcium and iron. So while floating is getting rid of calcium and lead from your skeleton, ingesting this water is kind of replacing that calcium you might have been losing. Just for the record, it wasn't all, you know, trumpets and rainbows and angel farts. The water tasted pretty nasty from what we understand, right? It's not like the water that you would drink from your faucet or your water filter today. Yeah, kind of a, uh, was described in an Atlas Obscura article as a sulfuric, eggy flavor, which I guess makes sense because of the calcium. Uh, Well, sulfur, you know, rotten eggs, you know, have a smell of sulfur. And I guess there's a lot, isn't there a lot of calcium in like egg shells? Yeah, eggshells are like ballpark 40% calcium, I think. Got it. Well, that makes sense then. But people were drinking this stuff on purpose, Ben? Yes, because they wanted to be able to move. They wanted to walk. They wanted to be able to use their limbs. Wait, so they were drinking it out of the liquid that they themselves were stewing in? Uh, Probably not at the same time. Okay. <laughs> was I this hope. like bottled and sold after? I'm sorry, I've got so many questions here. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, like, this is like human stew. I imagine the, uh, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was like the material was bottled separately. But I'm also picturing it as like, the stuff that people were actually soaking in, which is really gross. Yeah, that that feels like maybe a level of laziness that even I have yet to attain. Life goals. Uh, so watch out, Devonshire. I'm on the way to you. <laughs> maybe, maybe to maybe to streamline things, they would just give you a ladle. It would come with your uh, uh-huh. with your with your soak experience. You get your ladle, and then you just you know why not kill two birds with one stone? You soak it and you drink it all at the same time. No, yeah, you know, but you're sitting there with other people. You don't know where they've been. And it's like the thing with public pools. You know, it's a trust fall for real. Who's going to pee in there, right? That's always my question. They didn't coronate this stuff. Uh, Spoiler alert, it's going to be me. It's going to be you? You're Mm -hmm. one of them? I'm a peer. No, I'm kidding. No, I'm oh, not a monster. Gosh. I would never. I would never. Uh, but, you know, but the chlorine does knock knock that out. Do you ever hear those myths about, like, certain pool treatments that will, like, show who the peer is? That if you pee, it's going to all of a sudden, like, have some sort of, like, ink stain that's going to, like, track you through the pool so everyone knows it was you? I don't think that's actually a real thing, but I remember hearing tell of that. And it was a, 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 a myth that was meant to discourage people from peeing in pools. I heard about that, and I filed it under That's Awesome, if true. I like that instant karma. Uh, Anyway, our possibly extremist views of public pools aside, decades later, a guy named Dr. George Baker finally understands that it's not the apples themselves. It's not the cider itself. It's not people's drinking habits. It's the lead that uh, exists between the process of taking an apple from an orchard and turning it into a delicious, boozy beverage. Baker is the Queen's physician at the time, and he is doing something that finally helps crack the case. He is corresponding with other experts. Oddly enough, he's talking with Benjamin Franklin, and old Benny F is like, you know, here's what happened, George. Uh, I don't know what's going on with you guys over on your side of the pond, but in Boston, when I was just a wee teenager, we had an outbreak of what we recognized as lead poisoning, and then we realized there were lead stills that we were using in the process of creating rum. And we know of this because there's, uh, there's still a letter, an extant letter of Benjamin Franklin's where he talks about lead poisoning 
And in this letter, you can see that they've clearly traced Lett as, as the culprit. And so Franklin is saying to George Baker, well, you know, this might be a similar case, very reasonable. Now Baker has to prove his hypothesis. Yeah. So Baker, um, in 1767, he noted the similarities between lead poisoning and this Devon colic, and he began to become highly suspicious of this acidity argument, right? That that was what was causing it, the acidity in the cider. Uh, and after talking to Ben Franklin, who, all the, by the way, is always popping up in interesting, helpful ways throughout history. I know he's a problematic dude and definitely had some weird bodies buried under his house and was a bit of a womanizer and not maybe always the most stand-up guy, but he definitely knew how to solve a good history mystery, didn't he? He did. He did. And everything you just said about him is true, Noel, but he, including the part where he pops up at the weirdest moments to do a cameo in some other historical tale. So that's right. They, he had to test this. And so he takes cider from Devonshire, which has high lead content, and cider from another area, which has zero lead content. He takes... Uh, about 14 liters of Devon cider. And from that, he extracts a grain of lead, 65 milligrams. And then from that, we can calculate today, the cider contained about five parts per million of lead. And that's more than enough to create the symptoms of mild lead poisoning, even if you only drink about a pint a day. If you're like, hey guys, I like cider, but I'm not a, you know, cider-holic or whatever. I'm just going to have my one pint a day, 5 p.m. after a long day in, at work or whatever. Uh, so the problem is that some people, especially farmhands, would drink like a gallon of cider a day, four liters, and this would eventually cause severe lead poisoning. And now Baker's discovered this. He says, okay, it's the lead. How is the lead getting in there? It's a good question, and we're going to hop to that in just a second, but I wanted to drop a little bit of cider trivia on you, Ben, and, and Ridiculous Historians. I recently took a, a much-needed trip to Seattle with my daughter and my girlfriend, and during the trip, visited with a listener of Movie Crush. It's another show that I'm on, and his name's David Gooch. I don't know if he listens to the show or not, but if he does, hi, Gooch. But he works at a cidery in Seattle called the Seattle Cider Company, and I kind of remarked that that, you know, you don't you don't really think of cider as being like a, a particularly popular beverage in the United States. Like there's like, what can you think of, Ben? Like on I can probably count on one hand how many cider varieties are available at most of our neighborhood bars is like Strongbow sure. and like and Woodchuck, I guess. And then uh -huh. I know that uh, Stella makes one, too, but it's not super popular. And he pointed out that since Prohibition like ended, nobody made cider. Like for many, 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 many years, hmm. like a long, long time. And I'm not quite firm on the amount of time, but his company, uh, Seattle Cider Company, was one of the very first since Prohibition to start manufacturing cider on a large scale, which I thought was interesting. And he gave us a tour of the facilities and uh, all of the fermentation giant vats and the canning operation. It was really, really cool to see that. But I just thought that was interesting because uh, he, he said since Prohibition, and I thought he was referring to like, wait, was cider prohibited like further than like regular Prohibition? And he said, no, I meant like since Prohibition, prohibition. So that was pretty interesting. Yeah, interesting. And 
You know, I like cider as much. As I like it. Okay, it's good. Well, yeah. the cider they had at Seattle Cider Company was much less of a sweet kind of saccharine cider mm-hmm. that you, and it would probably be more similar to the types of cider they would have made back in these days, totally. where it's like got an appley quality to it, but it's not sugary sweet. It really is almost more like an ale that has you know an appleness to it. And I yeah. quite like the ones that I tried there. Yeah, I'd love to try out some of that local cider if anybody. Feels like sending some or has recommendations of cider that I should try or get into. Yeah, help me help me evolve my palate, please. God knows I need the help. <laughs> so, <laughs> so here's the thing. He has proven the culprit. He, now he's asking himself, how does this lead get into the process? He says it's either an apple press that has lead lined in it or one of the vessels used for fermentation or maybe... There's lead in the pipes that convey the apple juice to the fermentation vat. And it's a local village industry, which means this explains how the levels of poison can vary from one place to the next. And eventually, especially in places where people were dying, Baker was able to find a particular like lead-lined vessel. So at this point, we might reasonably assume that people would be happy about knowing this, that they would say, oh, good, it's lead poisoning. We like not being paralyzed. We like not having these terrible symptoms. Thank you, Dr. Baker. But that's not what happened. No, because a lot of these people thought you are going to ruin our main industry. They were like, bro, we know you work with the queen and that's cool for you, but we're poor. We have to do this. And in fact, many of us rely on apples, not just for business, but it's the main thing we eat. Well, it also reminds me of, it's a little more modern example, but that botulism scare with the pizza, the frozen pizza maker. Oh, yeah. Um, the, and then he ended up doing like a publicity stunt to, to do like a funeral for all mm-hmm. the potentially infected pizzas. And even though we know in that story, the canned mushrooms that were suspect didn't end up even testing positive for botulism and he had to destroy this massive amount of product and then that got out and then it kind of, it just, it sort of tanks you. Even if it, people remember the bad news, even if it doesn't end up being true. So I could see how that would be something that would be scary, even though it wasn't directly cider related, Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically to to the menu, it was you know connected to the cider, but it was something that could be mitigated and then you know dealt with and and, and move forward. I could see how it could put a taint on the whole industry, you know, with people thinking, "Oh God, cider was to blame." Yeah, and it's weird because historians know that Baker was very well aware of some cider manufacturers not being big fans of this idea. They had also recently campaigned to repeal a tax on cider, so they were sort of in a punchy, fighty mood. And locals argued that Devon's cider didn't contain that much lead. And they said, actually, the problem really is the earlier point about acidity. And the lead that you found in the cider was probably caused by farmers shooting at birds in the orchards, and that left some bullets behind inside the apples. So they're grasping at straws. And, and he, was, he was vilified. Baker was, just like Samuel and washing your hands, Baker was vilified by authority figures in the area as a, quote, faithless son of Devon. And, uh, <laughs> and people were, you know, 
they felt to some degree betrayed, like their livelihood was in danger. But his thesis remained relatively unscathed, and it's happening while technology is evolving. So more modern machines are replacing these old lead-lined machines. And as much due to that as due to Baker's breakthrough, Devonshire colic becomes increasingly rare. And then cider makers, whatever they may have said publicly or at the local, oh, publicly as in at the local pub. Indeed. Uh, and uh, no, let's leave it in. Let's, no, it's in. It's, 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 it's part of the record. <laughs> so, thanks. So uh, no matter what they said in public, a lot of cider makers went back to their to their operations and quietly removed lead from their process on their own. And Ben, this would have been this is in like the early 1800s, right? Yeah, by that by that point. It's interesting because obviously even still today, we still have problems with lead contamination in water supplies like in Flint, Michigan and even mm-hmm. in Detroit um, because of aged infrastructure and pipes and stuff like that, that there isn't the money to replace or just, you know, I guess irresponsible governance uh, or I think it largely comes back to lack of money to improve infrastructure. We mm-hmm. have these spates of lead poisoning among children and lead levels that are way beyond acceptable levels. Yeah, and it, this is uh, a little bit of a thought experiment as as we're wrapping up the episode. I'm really glad you brought this up. There's a thing that uh, we've talked about maybe in the past on air or off. I've always been fascinated by it. It's called the lead crime hypothesis. Have you heard of this? I have not, Ben. So we know that lead is very toxic to multiple organs of the body, the brain in particular. The lead crime hypothesis argues that there is an association between elevated levels of lead in the blood of children, right? So they're exposed in childhood in their formative years, and later increased rates of crime and delinquency. Oh my God. So the idea of this hypothesis is that exposure to lead when you're a kid, when your brain's developing, may have effects that make you more likely to commit crimes as an adult you know, or as a, as a, you know, as you go through your teens, this remains a hypothesis. It hasn't been conclusively proven, but I would love to see information about Devon and Devonshire. And maybe, you know, if there was some correlation between crime in that time and exposure to lead in the cider industry, we don't have that information now. And we also, uh, we also have to just emphasize yet again, that is a hypothesis. And it's not, you know, it's not conclusively proven. Well, and I mean, surely this isn't something that happens like, uh, you know, what's that, like genetic memory or something like that? I forget the exact term. Epigenetics. Epigenetics. But I did just look up crime stats for Devon. And uh, in 2021, we're between April 2020 and March 2021, Devon has an 81% crime rate. So what does, what does that mean exactly? I don't know. <laughs> the total number of violent crimes uh, is 29.5 thousand. So violent crimes says makes up 32.8% of all crimes reported in the country. Um, and the number is up 4.6% compa- year over year compared to the previous sample. Uh. Uh, so I mean, it must have to do with the population because Devon, you know, the UK in general isn't a massive land area. So, I mean, for an, a small shire like Devon to have an 81% crime rate, that seems pretty nuts. 
Yeah, no, that's a very good point. But again, I, I couldn't possibly correlate that to the lead poisonings epidemic of the 1800s, but maybe you could. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, well, we would love to see the science on that. Let us know if you are an expert. Let us know what your take on the lead crime hypothesis is. And most importantly, I know the question that's been on everybody's mind, you heard about the waters of Bath and you thought, well, I want to take the waters, guys. Can I still take the waters? The answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> these waters aren't proven to be hazardous or healing nowadays. But if the mood so strikes you and find yourself in the neighborhood, you could soak in those waters. You could take a sip of that water. You can even, we should have mentioned, like back in the heyday of Bath, people were just literally laying in water for hours and hours, right? They needed entertainment. So there would be these musicians that would come and like play to people in a bathtub, which sounds like it could be a fun time. You can do that today. You can do it the same way that people did it hundreds of years ago, but hopefully you'll be doing it for fun and recreation instead of an attempt to no longer be paralyzed. And just to, I'm, I'm not the best statistician, I'm not going to lie, but the stats that I have on Devon violent crimes is that of the national crime rate, 81% is from Devon, uh, which oh. I, I don't know. Um, you know what? Just glaze over all of this stat stuff. I think I might be overthinking it. Uh, but um, it's very interesting that you can still hang out in Bath and tour those uh, those bathhouses uh, that you know have probably not changed much at all since the times of the story that we're telling today. Yeah, and we would love to hear your take on this. Thanks so much for tuning in. Thanks, of course, to our awesome producers, Casey Pegram, Andrew A. Howe Howard, and of course, Max Williams. I think we're still working on a nickname for Max. We might even drag Max on the air. Ooh. You know, it's important. And a little behind the scenes inside baseball, also thanks to Alex Williams, who uh, composed our theme, Brother to Max. No joke. Yes, this is true. And also, big, big thanks, of course, to Eli and Diana, A Ridiculous Romance. Uh, can't wait for you to check out their show. Big thanks, of course, to Eves Jeffco, who just made an appearance on Ridiculous History. And, uh, well, you know, we're required to say it. Big thanks to Jonathan Strickland. Noel, I'm thinking that maybe we can, like, redirect the Quister's pedantic rage toward Eli and Diana. What do you think? I think they've got it coming. It's a hazing kind of situation, right? <laughs> Maybe it is. Uh, most importantly, man, uh, thanks to you. And here's to us not getting lead poisoning. Same, Ben. Same. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. 
The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Hyatt Ziva Riviera Cancun at CheapCaribbean.com. That's CheapCaribbean.com.